Welcome to the National Community Church Podcast. We're thrilled to be able to share this weekend message with you from Pastor Mark Batterson, our lead pastor at NCC. If you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes or go to theaterchurch.com. A few months ago, my roommate from college, Brad Rosenberg, sent me a t-shirt. I'm wearing it. And you have no idea what uh, Horton Ground is, do you? Or the picture on the t-shirt or perhaps even the CBC. Would you like to know? Well, that's where I spent two years of college in a dorm named after a theologian, Stanley Horton, lived on the ground level, Horton Ground, and uh, went to a school that doesn't exist anymore (laughs) called Central Bible College. Uh, Now, to you, the shirt really doesn't mean much. You would not wear this shirt, would you? But it's significant to me because of the memories and the moments over two years. Now, one of them I think it's appropriate to share because uh, Daylight Savings Weekend. And by the way, for the love of pastors, spring forward. Uh, not our favorite weekend. Got to preach to people who are working on a, an hour less sleep. But I know that all of our campuses are locked and loaded this weekend. So, uh, one night... Uh, we sneak into my uh, suite mate's room, and, uh, you know, college is about pranks, right? And so uh, here's the thing you need to know about CBC, pretty tight curfew, okay? Uh, doors locked at midnight until 6 a.m. You're not getting in or out unless it's through our window on Horton Ground. <laughs> um, so uh, we decide, hey, you know, and this is pre-cell phones, like, let's just do the, the alarm clock caper. You know what this is, right? Uh, we decided to move his clock forward three hours. And so he gets up, showers, gets ready, goes to breakfast, and he's wondering why the cafeteria isn't open at 6 a.m., why everybody else overslept. It's because it was 3 a.m. And then it was pretty awesome because the door was locked. He couldn't get back in. Some fun memories, but uh, I'll tell you what, some uh, pretty powerful memories too. That's where uh, in a prayer room, I remember pleading with God to heal my knee. Because two years before, I'd torn ACL on one of my knees, and here we are two weeks before the national tournament. Uh, I'm having best season of my career I think we got a shot at winning the national championship. And listen, I better say this, NCCAA, okay? Uh, Extra C's for Christian. I was a first-team All-American. But that's not nearly as impressive, is it, with the NCC? Sometimes I just leave that part out. And so I'm in the prayer room in our dorm, and I'm pleading with God, not again, I don't want to go through this again. It's a tough surgery, it's a tough rehab, and and the dream was to at least have a crack at the national championship, but that's how my basketball career ended. The Lord didn't answer that prayer the way that I wanted Him to. And you know what, I tucked it into my Deuteronomy 29.29 file, and I still don't totally understand it, to be honest. 
but I, I've had few moments where I've prayed with that kind of intensity and where I felt God's nearness in that way. What, what I'm getting at is this, Horton ground is holy ground to me. And you probably have some places like that as well, I'm guessing. And the Bible is full of them. And we're going to look at one of them. Now we're in a series called Long Story Short. Uh, we're looking at 13 inciting incidents from Genesis to Revelation. We've talked about uh, the creation, the promise, uh, the exodus, the covenant. And this weekend we come to the conquest. There are a lot of ways to read the Bible, to study the Bible. One of them is as biography. Uh, you've got Abraham, you've got Moses, you've got David, you've got, you can study the Bible through these people that God used in a profound way. But I also believe you can read the Bible uh, through the lens of geography, and it's an interesting way to do it. Because spirituality and geography are not unrelated. In fact, I think every geography has a genealogy. Let me have a little bit of fun with this and then uh, uh, we'll jump into scripture. Uh, on June 5th, 1663, a farmer named Francis Pope acquired a 400 acre tract of land that included Jenkins Hill. Uh, Francis Pope, not to be confused with Pope Francis, <laughs> named it Rome. Some thought it was a playful pun given his last name, but Pope believed it was a prophetic name. According to the standard history of the city of Washington from a study of the original sources published in 1914 by William Tyndall, Pope had a dream that one day a splendid parliament house would be built on the hill now known as Capitol Hill. That's pretty amazing considering the fact that it was the middle of the middle of nowhere in 1663 and now his pasture land is the capital of the free world and the epicenter of democracy 130 years later president george washington would lead a parade to jenkins hill uh, music playing drums beating colors flying spectators celebrating as the cornerstone of the capital was laid on september 18 1793 consecrated uh, in Mason tradition with corn, wine, and oil. And uh, I kind of like this little piece of history. The festivities ended with a 500-pound ox being butchered, uh, setting precedent for one of America's most sacred rituals, the barbecue. Now, I, I don't have time, but uh, 225 years of storied history. If those walls could talk. And I love history, so... You know, I mean, there's so many layers. There's such a genealogy to, to this place that we call the capital. May 25, 1844, did you know Samuel Moore sent his first long-distance uh, uh, message, uh, telegraph? What hath God wrought uh, from the capital building? There's a little plaque in there uh, if you go tour it. Um, listen, that's where March 3, 1865, Abraham Lincoln is in the president's room and he learns about the South's uh, desire to surrender. The next day he delivers his second inaugural address with malice toward none, with charity for all from the East Portico. And six weeks later, 
our 16th president is laid in state in the Capitol Rotunda, the victim of John Wilkes Booth's 44 caliber bullet. December 8, 1941, Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, gets up and rallies a grief-stricken nation the day after a date which will live in infamy, Pearl Harbor. And then you've got May 25, 1961, when John F. Kennedy uh, challenges us to land a man on the moon and return him safely to the earth by the end of the decade. Layer after layer after layer after layer of history in our short history as a country. Every geography has a genealogy. And if you don't know the geography of the Bible, and it seems like we don't put maps in the back anymore. And by the way, if you can, I I really encourage a visit to the Holy Land. But you're not going to grasp the full significance of what God pulls off with this conquest. If you don't understand a little bit of the geography. We're going to look at one place. It's called Gilgal. And it's one of the most significant places in Scripture. If you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Joshua. And we'll get there in a minute. Promise, this is going to be a long introduction, but then a quick message, okay? (laughs) Week one, I said that God is bigger than big and closer than close. You don't need to go anywhere to find God. God is present. What's absent is awareness. God is here, there, and everywhere. You don't have to take a pilgrimage to the western wall and, and put a prayer in the slat. Now that said, pilgrimage was an integral part of Judaism. There were three pilgrimage feasts when Jews from all over the ancient world would travel to Jerusalem. And I love Psalm 84, 5. Blessed are those whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Honestly, I think the value of pilgrimage probably comes back to a little formula that um, You could quote as easily as I could at this point, change of pace plus change of place equals change of perspective. And so the Jewish people built a temple. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. It had a holy of holies. And God would manifest his presence uh, between the wings of the cherubim at a place called the mercy seat, which was a gold lid on top of the ark of the covenant. But the Bible also says that God does not live in temples built by human hands. If you studied the history of religion, you know that what set Judaism apart was its monotheism. The Shema is the centerpiece. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Fast forward in the Nicene Creed. It says we believe in one God. Three persons, but one God. Not seem so basic to us. We just take it at face value. But this was a dramatic departure 3,500 years ago. This is so simple yet so radical. In 1500 BC, the dominant belief was that not in one God with a capital G, it was lots of gods, lowercase g, and those gods were geographical or territorial. There were Egyptian gods and Babylonian gods, Canaanite gods, and the prevailing opinion was that those gods were powerless outside their jurisdiction. And this is huge if you want to understand 
the Old Testament. Let me give you an example. Uh, Elijah's showdown with the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah. Uh, it's 851 to 1 odds. And it's an away game. What I mean by that is this. Mount Carmel was a pagan high place. So it's almost like Elijah is saying, uh, let me beat you at your game at your stadium. And then he trash talks too. The sig significance of that miracle is this. God was proving his power beyond what were thought to be his boundaries. And if you go back, this is what the ten signs and the ten wonders in Egypt are all about. God reveals his power, his authority in a place that was considered to be ruled by Egyptian gods. Now let me rewind just a little bit. In Exodus 33, the Israelites are camped around Mount Sinai and Moses prays an amazing prayer. He says, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? See, I, I, again, this is a radical request. This is a radical statement. Moses is professing his faith in a God who goes with us. In a God who goes before us. In a God who will never leave us nor forsake us. And then God makes this radical promise. He says, my presence will go with you. It's our benediction right at the end of a lot of services. When we leave this place, we don't leave the presence of God. The presence of God goes with us wherever we go. Now let me get where this is going. The Jewish rabbis used to debate why God would appear to Moses in a burning bush. Why not pyramid? Why not the palace? Why not show up in some kind of show of power? But here we are on the backside of the desert in the middle of nowhere, and God shows up in a burning bush. And the consensus in rabbinic tradition is that God showed up in a burning bush on the backside of the desert to show that no place was devoid of his presence. And they gave him a name, and I love this name. Are you ready for this? They called him The Place. Ha! God's everywhere you want to go. He was there before you. He's coming after you. There are no boundaries to his greatness. We sing that. God is bigger than big and closer than close. And with that as a backdrop, it's the only way to appreciate what's happening in Joshua. Chapter 1, verse 1, we'll put it on the screen. It says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, 
Moses, my servant is dead. Now then, you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot. As I promised Moses, your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give to them. I can't read this verse without having a flashback to an August morning in 1996. I was a rookie pastor. Had no idea what I was doing. We were about August, probably about 15, 20 people on a good Sunday because our students were gone. And I'm doing devotions, and I just happen to be in the book of Joshua. And I read verse 3. I will give you every place where you set your foot. Something happens in my spirit promise jumps off the page into my and I feel this prompting to let's just act on it let's because at that point I thought this is one church with one multi-site wasn't even in the equation one site would be great (laughs) and I feel this prompting to pray a perimeter around Capitol Hill and it was hot and it was humid but uh 4.7 miles and a couple hours later because I I stopped and prayed at different places I had prayed a circle around Capitol Hill Um, I'll be honest it wasn't with the intent of property I never thought we'd even own property I was just staking claim to an area that I knew God had called us to to share the good news of the gospel and there have been a few people It had pushed back a little bit. Said, Mark, this promise was for Joshua, not for you. And that's when I pushed back a little bit. Promise wasn't for Joshua. It's for Moses. Read it. (laughs) And just as God transferred it from Moses to Joshua, I happen to believe That no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. You know what? Uh, You have to stake claim to the promises of God. And one of the ways that we do that is through prayer. You know, the promised land was God's gift to the Israelites, but it came with giants. What makes us think that it's going to be any different for us? That it's going to be any easier It's not going to be any easier because God doesn't want it to be any less awesome when he puts his power on display. All right, now let me fast forward. I'm going to try to get us to Gilgal. 
But I can't get there until I share three quick lessons with you on the way, okay? And I want you to write these down. Now, we're studying history, biblical history. But what's beautiful about the Bible is that every story is a microcosm. And God's word is living and active. So what happens is you find yourself in the story. And so these principles, these lessons that we learn in these stories, they still work. Circumstances totally different. A couple thousand years later, his word's still living and active. And the principles that we see in the Bible are still the ones that I try to live my life. Why? Why? Because they work. Why do they work? Because they're true. And so here we go. First, follow the ark. God gives specific instructions. When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priest carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. Follow the ark. Um, I had one of the worst driving experiences of my life in, in 20 plus years of living in this city uh, on Thursday. You know, I don't, I don't commute because I, I live on the hill, but I happened to be out in Virginia and I was coming back into the city and, and right around rush hour. And listen, I trust GPS. <laughs> I'm thinking it's my arc, right? Follow the arc. And, and, uh, and I must have just hit it just after the time because I, I, I'm on the road and I get off on Independence to go west to get home. And sure enough, they shut her down. And it's only eastbound, headed out. And all I can do is turn on. And I can't get off the Rock Creek Parkway. <laughs> I called Laura just to talk me down, baby. Talk me down right now. And a trip that should have taken 25 minutes. An hour and 20 minutes later, I get home. It was not fun. That re- I don't even know that really has anything to do with this. I just needed to get it off my chest. <laughs> no, seriously. Um, don't try to get ahead of God. Now follow the ark. Don't get ahead of it. And don't think that you know some shortcut that God hasn't thought of. Follow his leading. And that means an intimate relationship. With the Lord Jesus Christ, following him, but also it means keeping in step with the Spirit. Listen, the ark represents the presence of God. And so it makes me think of Moses. If, if your presence doesn't go with us, uh, I don't want to go. And here's the bottom line. I, I believe this more and more. That the presence of God is the solution to your problem. Now, come on. Um, you know me well enough to, to know. Get counseling. You need counseling. Everybody needs counseling. I need counseling. But you, you better also get into the presence of God. Sometimes that's in an altar where you just kneel and surrender and pray. I'll tell you, the fastest way to get in the presence of God is to get into the word of God. I tell you, worship, oh man, because God inhabits the praises of his people. And so when we begin to worship him, his presence begins to manifest itself. 
And now we're following the ark. Number two, consecrate yourself. Now, I could preach on this uh, seven days a week and twice on Sunday. Uh, this was my verse of the year last year and my, my word of the year. Uh, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. Uh, God will do amazing things uh, among you. Uh, let me just keep it short. We want to do something amazing for God. But that's not our job. That's his job. God does amazing things for us. Our job is to consecrate ourselves. And if we consecrate ourselves, if we do our job, God is going to do his job. What's consecration? Well, let me tell you what it's not. It's not going to church. It's not daily devotions. It's not fasting during Lent. It's not keeping the Ten Commandments. It's not tithing. It's not going on a mission trip, serving in a ministry, or leading a small group. All of those are good things. Let's do those things. But consecration isn't a habit thing. It's a heart thing. It's, it's not behavior modification. It's a heart that's fully surrendered to God. I'll tell you what it is. It's getting up out of the throne of your own life. Say, I just can't sit here any longer. And relinquishing that throne to Jesus Christ. It's surrendering all of you to all of him. It's recognizing that it's all from him and it's all for him anyways. 1 Timothy 4, 5 says that we're consecrated by prayer and by the word of God. So let's start there and see what God does. Three, step into the river. In Joshua 3, 8, God says when you reach the edge of the Jordan waters, go stand in the river. Strange command, right? Why would you do that? Because your feet are going to get wet. I don't want to get my shoes wet. It would be much easier if God would just part the water first, then I'll step in. That's just not the sequence of faith in the Bible. Faith is taking the first step before God reveals the second step. And then trusting him for the outcome. And so they step into the river. Then and only then does God part the waters. And they do something interesting, by the way. As they cross the Jordan, they take 12 large stones and they carry them with them. And they set up an altar at a place called Gilgal. And we're finally there. <laughs> Joshua 5.9, then the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. It took one day for God to get Israel out of Egypt. It took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. And this is where God does it. And this is so beautiful. He rolls away their reproach. Finally, the past is in the past. It's the place where old wounds are healed. It's the place where we finally find 
a measure of freedom from our shame. So many things happen at Gilgal. The Israelites celebrate their first Passover in the promised land at Gilgal. All of the men are circumcised at Gilgal. This is where the manna from heaven stops, okay? And they start eating the produce of the promised land. And this is where Joshua has an encounter with the commander of the army of the Lord. And takes off his sandals because it's holy ground. But there's one more thing. And this is what I want to close with. They take these 12 stones and they build an altar. Why? Joshua 4, 5, 4 6 tells us why. In the future when your children ask you what do these stones mean. Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off from before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. These stones are to be a memorial. Come on, not, not unlike the Lincoln, right? Or the, Jeff- or the Washington, or memorial. So that you don't forget what God has done. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Let me fast forward 97 years. Israel has conquered the land and they've entered an era of history where there are judges. And there's one judge named Ehud. Left-handed for what it's worth, the Bible tells us. And there's a story that is so not politically correct. I'll give you the short version. Um, Ehud says, I I got a secret to tell you. Oldest trick in the book right there, right? He's got a dagger hidden. And uh, the Bible, I wouldn't say this, but since the Bible says it, I better. Um, King was fat. And so when the dagger goes in... It disappears under the folds of fat. Like it's just this bizarre description. And, and so no one's in there. Basically takes him into the bathroom stall. Locks the door. He sneaks out the window, out the sewer. And, and escapes. Um, and uh, there's this awkward moment where the servants are outside. Like how much longer do we wait? You know that moment where you're wondering is it one or two right now? But I'm guessing the king spent a lot of time in the bathroom. And so they're just waiting. Uh, Long story short, uh, Ehud escapes. Now what would lead him to do something like that? I know that's kind of gruesome. But he was reclaiming uh, the land that they had been promised. It had been taken by Eglon and his people. And so, uh, long story short, here's the backstory. And I never noticed this before. But Ehud had uh, actually gone to pay tribute to Eglon. And this is humbling. This is embarrassing. This is supposed to be our land. Now i got to go pay taxes to you. And so I'm guessing that he's walking away totally defeated, tail between his legs. But Judges 3.19 says, when Ehud reached the stone images near Gilgal, he turned back. Now, why, why then and why there? Some translations actually say stone idols. I think that's a poor translation. It, it literally means sculptured stones. I think these are the very stones that the Israelites set up as an altar to God 97 years before. And I would suggest that they built it for Ehud. Because there would be a moment 
when someone would need to be reminded that they had given up on the promise that had been given to their forefathers. And something happens when he sees that altar. Something gets riled up in his spirit. Something stirs his spirit. And he goes back. And he kills the king. And Israel experiences 80 years of peace as a result. I don't think it happens if Joshua doesn't have the foresight to build the altar. Without the altar, without that reminder, I don't think this happens. What are we doing that's going to make a difference 97 years from now? What altars are we building for our children and grandchildren, uh, for those who come behind us that will trigger their faith? I say this all the time. We think that what God does for us is for us. It's never just for us. We think right here, right now, God is thinking nations and generations. And so we better build some altars for Ehud, for the people we don't even know. Now I know it seems like a little bit of a stretch, but here's the bottom line. Everything God did for Abraham, he did for you. All of those promises belong to you. Why? Because we were grafted into Abraham through Jesus Christ. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. So are you. So let's just praise the Lord. (laughs) You know, I'll never forget something that Stanley Tam said to me. um, Now over 100 years old. Founder of the United States Plastic Corporation. Giving more than $120 million to kingdom causes. Wonderful man of God. He said over dinner, God can't reward Abraham yet because his seed is still multiplying. And that's true for you too. I'll tell you what, I I am so out of time. But I want you to know that every battle we fight, we fight for others. Every victory we win, we win for others. And so let me finish with a very short story. Zach Jury attended National Community Church for 18 months when he worked at FBI headquarters. He's what you would think of when you think of an FBI agent. Tough guy, smart guy, but all of us have a soft spot, and sometimes that's where God meets us, right? So, uh, it's about a year ago, Zach um, emails me and, and uh, said I could share it. He says, I never really understood uh, or really accepted that God loves me for me as me. He said, that changed the day I stood at the end of an NCC service at the Lincoln Theater, Road J, seat 111. That's where I heard the still small voice say over and over again, I love you. 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 He said, he must have whispered those words to me at least a hundred times. And with tears pouring down my face, I experience his love in the most visceral way I ever have. The Lincoln Theater is a profoundly special place to me. It will forever be the place where I heard, really heard, and believed that the Lord loves me. Roji J, seat 111. That's Zach Jury's Gilgal. And I believe that for you this weekend. Come on, this is your day. This is your place. It's why you're here this weekend. This 
is where God rolls away the reproach. This is where your heart is circumcised to him. This is where the Passover happens. And this is where you build an altar to God. Let's pray. Lord, I I pray for every person here this weekend. But Lord, especially for those who right now feel a tug at their heart. God, I believe that's your Holy Spirit. And I pray that right now, that people at all of our campuses right now would just be consecrating themselves to you. God, for those who have never surrendered their life to your lordship, I pray that they would do it right here, right now. And God, we rejoice with the angels in heaven at what you're doing in their hearts. Lord, for others, it's the shame uh, that you're going to roll away, that reproach that's, um, that's been there for too long. And God, for others, it's going to be a part of their heart that is circumcised to you in a new way. And they're going to come to life in a way that they never have before. And Lord, we're going to build an altar to you, giving you thanks for what you've done. And God, thank you that for what you've done for us today is not just for us. Maybe you did it for something that's going to happen 97 years from now. And so we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.